Hi everyone and welcome to South Asia Sphere, Hima South Asia's monthly roundup of news events and developing stories across South Asia. I'm Raisa and I'm joined by my colleagues Shubhanga, Malan and Shweta. Hi guys. Hi. 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 So, uh big stories in this edition are the impact of escalating violence in Afghanistan on journalists and media outlets and spyware and surveillance in South Asia after Pegasus. In around South Asia in 5 minutes, we're talking about Myanmar 6 months after the military coup, a new prime minister to Nepal, Chinese president Xi Jinping's visit to Tibet. and a bill being debated in Sri Lanka that expands military creep into higher education let's begin with the situation in afghanistan thanks raisa as the last us and nato forces leave afghanistan the taliban have captured strategic border crossings and entered several provincial capitals such as kunduz kandahar herat and lashkar as of the 11th of august the taliban have captured nine provincial capitals in less than a week across the country thousands of civilians have been killed or wounded so far this year around 330000 afghans have been displaced and the number of people crossing the border illegally has increased to around 40% compared to the time before troops began withdrawing in may as the situation gets worse one of the crucial concerns for afghanistan is the threats against the media what will happen to the fragile gains in press freedom over the last 20 years that's right shweta so afghan journalists have been highlighting the impact of this escalating violence and like the impact that it's having on media freedom so they've been sharing updates on certain groups for example that i've been a part of on media outlets such as helmer national radio and television being taken over by the taliban or more recently the closure of media outlets in Kunduz, Jauzjan and Saripul with journalists fleeing to Kabul. I think the killing of Reuters photographer Danish Siddiqui gave some kind of indication of the threats that journalists were facing when covering the conflict, but you know, when it comes to coverage of the impact on media outlets within the country, that's only just beginning to be reported by international publications. whereas for example upon the news of danish's death there were a lot of stories and coverage including in sri lanka as well kind of highlighting his contribution and uh, the content that is produced covering the region and i feel that this kind of stories about the impact on media outlets within afghanistan has been kind of slow to come out Yeah and these recent attacks and the Taliban's closure of media outlets in the areas under their control has led press freedom organizations to raise alarm about the safety of journalists now the afghan ministry of uh, information and culture recently said that 51 media outlets have been closed in the country uh, just over the last 3 months the situation for women journalists in particular has worsened since march when Three female media workers were shot dead outside Kabul. There are also restrictions imposed by the government like recently the government announced that it was unlawful to broadcast news against national interest. Government officials have also ordered the arrest of journalists reporting on civilian casualties from government operations. In late July, four journalists were arrested by Afghanistan's 
uh, intelligence agency accusing them of spreading enemy propaganda after reporting trip to a border area. So that's just one of the many recent examples of threats and intimidation that reporters in Afghanistan had to face. Yeah, I mean, it's it's also interesting to know the kind of writing and reporting we're seeing you know, about Afghanistan um, in, in the media organizations around South Asia. In some way, I mean, Danish Siddiqui's case was a bit of an exception, um, also because I guess he was a very well-known photojournalist and, you know, did a lot of work covering um, the region, including India. But when it comes to other stories, I think most media organizations in the region have tended to source stories from, you know, newswire services. So those are not really that remarkable, but the editorial spaces are a bit more telling. And so, you know, over the past month or two, we've basically seen kind of a steady stream of op-eds and in some cases also editorials on the sort of the geopolitical fallout of all this and the impact on um, on particular countries and, and their quote-unquote national security. Predictably, most of this is visible in uh, Pakistani and Indian media. Um, just to give a few examples, um, a few headlines from Pakistan read, you know, new blow for Pak Afghan ties. Um, this was particularly important given the kidnapping of the um, daughter of the Afghan ambassador. So, you know, that, that took um, a lot of space in media. But the other stories, you know, prolonged strife in its neighbor will expose Pakistan to security threats. Similarly, quite a few op-eds and editorials in the Indian press as well, mostly looking at how um, India is positioned in all this geopolitically. So, you know, headlines uh, read, for example, regional powers in Afghanistan question, India right to wait till Taliban comes in full view, no need to rush into an Afghan strategy. So those have been the general kind of tenor of the kind of questions being asked and, and the kind of writing that's coming out. One notable and somewhat differently positioned piece among these was an article in the Karachi-based Dawn by the physicist and public intellectual Parvez Hoodboy, um, who's also a Himal contributor. So he had a colorfully titled piece um, called Who Messed Up Pakistan? And uh, it, I mean, it went into not just the, you know, complicity of the US and Soviet Union in, in Afghanistan's political trajectory, but also the role of the Pakistani state um, in, in, in Afghanistan's recent history. So I found that slightly interesting. Um, but with very few exceptions, I mean, you know, very few writings that bring the experiences and voices of those currently in Afghanistan. Now, moving on to our next story, uh, where we look at digital surveillance by governments in South Asia. In light of the revelations of the Pegasus Project, the investigative series which documented the use of an Israeli spyware by governments around the world, including India. Of course, as Pegasus is not the only spyware or surveillance tool around. Uh, and since other countries in the region didn't really show up in the reporting, we thought we would look at their records um, and, and see what the recent reporting on that issue uh, suggested. Yeah, Shubhanga. So, I'm sure for everyone who has been following this story quite closely, it did not come as a great surprise, but uh, more of a confirmation that uh, spyware was being widely used by governments in South Asia. Now, if you take Bangladesh um, in terms of cybersecurity laws, there's only the Information and Communication Technology Act and the highly controversial Digital Security Act. When we look at the existing legal structure, it is not um, sufficient to cope with novel cyber threats. And according to these revelations, like when, when the cyber threats, when they come from the government, you know, what can you do? 
Now, with regards to the Pegasus leaks, uh, the Bangladeshi government vehemently denied purchasing any any spyware. And uh, the Post and Telecommunication Minister uh, told the Daily Star that um, it is an attempt to uh, tarnish the image of Bangladesh. But um, coming back to the earlier point, now we knew this was happening. Early this year, the the investigative unit of uh, Al Jazeera in an expose revealed that the uh, uh, Bangladeshi intelligence services uh, bought Israeli-made spying tools from as far back as 2018. Now, this was a startling revelation because, you know, Bangladesh has no diplomatic relations with Israel and trade with Israel is prohibited. If you would like a brief overview, um, we spoke about this in uh, South Asia sphere uh, back in February. Then there were also reports in 2017 of the Bangladeshi government installing deep packet inspection tech that allows them to monitor and analyze any online content. Yeah, and I mean, we should remember that Pegasus is not the only major surveillance software around, um, you know, which is why it was not very surprising to not find other South Asian countries um, in that list uh, in, in the Pegasus reporting. And also, you know, like you mentioned, in this particular case, the ability to buy and use Pegasus requires uh, permission from the Israeli Defense Ministry, which, say, a country like Pakistan might not have, you know, given its difficult relations uh, with Israel. Uh, but coming back to Pakistan, I think, I mean, in some ways, they've led the electronic surveillance, you know, both in scale and intensity in the region, particularly following the global war on terror, quote-unquote, and in part supported by equipment, intelligence, and funds from the U.S., a few years back, they also tried to, um, you know, incorporate biometric information from owners on all SIM cards, which caused some outcry. And more recently, in 2019, concerns about the public tender of a web monitoring system uh, for identifying and blocking access to any online content that could be classified as unlawful under a particular law, uh, that report came out. So, and it seems um, they've uh, Pakistan has managed to secure the services of a Canadian company for that. Also, the same year, um, the Pakistan Telecom Authority directed the telecom industry to basically deploy a suitable technical solution, in quotes, for uh, monitoring, analyzing, um, uh, basically transfer of data over VOIP, voice over internet protocol, and uh, virtual private networks, which are often used to kind of bypass uh, restrictions on particular websites or kind of content. Thanks, Shubanga. So, and when it comes to Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka actually isn't really new to the name Pegasus. So when these tranche of stories came out, it actually wasn't like news to us. In Sri Lanka, there was this anonymous Twitter account that actually first posted that the defense ministry had activated Pegasus on all telecom networks in March 2021. And after that, it was subsequently raised by opposition MP Harin Fernando in Parliament. Now, one of the telecom operators' dialogue actually issued an official denial, which is quite unusual because they've usually remained silent when, you know, these kind of allegations have been made in the past. And then after news of Project Pegasus made headlines, Government representatives once again said there was no evidence to prove that the spyware was being used in Sri Lanka, but added that the possibility could not be ruled out. And to be fair, Sri Lanka has kind of shown this disturbing willingness to use surveillance tools in the past. 
Yeah, I remember, didn't uh, Maitripara Sirisena try to get uh, China's help on surveillance? Yeah, that's right, Marlon. So in 2019, when Sirisena visited China after the Easter Sunday bomb attacks, um, he actually asked China for help on online surveillance. And supposedly, um, this was to combat terrorism and misinformation on social media. There were actually even reports of a grant being provided of over 5 billion rupees for military support in terms of software and other surveillance equipment at the time. Since as far back as 2012, actually, reports have also been highlighting Sri Lanka's contracts with Chinese companies, uh, like, for example, ZTE and Hawaii, which includes telecom infrastructure. And this is slightly concerning as a U.S. Congressional Committee probe found that some products from these companies could be used to aid surveillance. But it's also not just China. So in July 2015, WikiLeaks actually revealed that the Milan-based hacking team, which is a company which sells intrusion and surveillance capabilities to government and law enforcement agencies, had actually been contacted by Sri Lankan intelligence services, police and the CID for their products on multiple occasions including for information on their remote control system, which basically allows for broad surveillance on PCs and smartphones. So while all the focus right now is on the Israeli-based NSO and the Pegasus project, um, as Shubanga said earlier, there are actually multiple companies which offer similar capabilities, and the agreements that they forge with governments are often veiled in secrecy. It takes, um, you know, massive leaks like this to reveal the extent of such surveillance. And it also highlights the need for better awareness of digital security and digital hygiene, especially for activists and journalists. Moving on to our next segment, Around South Asia in 5 Minutes. Now, starting from Sri Lanka, one of the main stories that broke in July was the uh, proposed Kotalawala National Defense University bill or the um, KNDU bill. Uh, now, the issue is that this act would um, exclude Kotalawala University from the purview of the University Grants Commission or the UGC, uh, which is in charge of the administration of state universities in Sri Lanka. And it, and it also propose, proposes to set up a, a parallel institutional structure outside the UGC that uh, operates under the purview of a board of governors. Um, now, this board is appointed by um, the Ministry of Defense, and it will consist of nine members, out of, uh, out of which five would be, would be from the military. Um, now, this bill was opposed by academics, activists, and some political parties citing it as a, um, a definite move uh, towards uh, militarization of education. A similar bill was proposed by the previous government as well in 2018, but um, it was withdrawn amidst uh, widespread uh, criticism. Uh, this bill was supposed to be presented last Friday uh, on the 6th of August uh, in the parliament, but uh, it was deferred by the government to a later date, uh, which means that um, the pressure that was put on the government has worked to, uh, to a certain extent, I guess. Also parallel to the protests against, this, uh, uh, against the KNDU bill, uh, there are also uh, school teachers who are, are currently striking and protesting against uh, salary anomalies. And uh, meanwhile in Nepal, after several months of political and legal contestation, 
um, there's a new government in power now. Uh, this basically comes after the Supreme Court overturned the former Prime Minister K.P. Sharma Oli's uh, um, decision to dissolve the parliament. And I think more significantly, it, uh, the court also instructed the office of the president to appoint Sher Badu Deoba, the current prime minister, um, as the prime minister, um, because the court basically recognized his claim to command the support of a majority of the members of the of the parliament. So the new government has been in power for almost a month. Uh, and yet the cabinet seats remain largely unfilled. I think there are five ministers right now. And, you know, given that this is a coalition government of five parties, uh, including a faction of the former incumbent party, it doesn't seem like this will be an easy term for the new prime minister. And uh, moving to Tibet, on July 21st, uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping made an unannounced visit to Tibet and is the first official visit by a Chinese president in 30 years. Now, the international campaign for Tibet linked Jinping's visit to the 70th anniversary of the controversial 17-point agreement, which the Dalai Lama has renounced as an agreement made under duress. China has historically made attempts to erase Tibetan culture and language. Uh, Most recently, ICT reported that new military camps for younger Tibetans have been established in Yingtri across the border from Arunachal Pradesh, in early 2021. ICT also reported increased surveillance in the days up to the visit. It has been six months since Myanmar's military seized power in the February 1st coup, which ended a decade of limited democratic reforms and triggered mass protest and a civilian disobedience movement. So what's happening in Myanmar six months later? Um, In addition to the kind of dire economic situation and COVID-19 spreading unchecked. Thousands of civil servants and workers have been sacked for joining protests. More than 900 people have been killed and thousands arrested since. The National Unity Government, composed of the NLD's overthrown administration and other minor parties in exile or hiding, have made little progress in regaining any control. Now, both sides are gearing up for a critical decision from the UN, where the Credentials Committee is scheduled to meet in September. Um, During a speech to mark six months since the coup, the military has renamed itself as a caretaker government. The leading general has also announced that the state of emergency imposed will continue until August 2023, pushing new elections to more than a year later than what was initially promised. So it remains to be seen if these promised elections will actually take place or just a way to stall for more time. And um, now we'll be moving on to our culture section, Bookmarked. Continuing on the same note, uh, my recommendation for this month is an online group exhibition called Myanmar Voices, We Are Still Here, curated by Hong Kong-based um, Korean Weber Gallery as a declaration of solidarity and support for 14 contemporary artists working on Myanmar. Um, the artwork serves as a reminder not only about the importance of expression and courage in the face of um, political oppression and censorship, but also kind of generations of creative voices in Myanmar who are pushing to represent like what's really going on in the country. Um, The exhibit will be up until the 15th of August, so do check it out through the link on our website. 
and uh, my recommendation is a book that was recently published um, and is available freely on the public domain it's authored by father stan swami who's the activist who died in early july and whose death has been termed um, also been termed judicial murder because uh, he had been under de- detention um, under the unlawful activities prevention act for a long time and he actually contracted covid during his detention and despite calls of you know of his uh, release and bail um, and the indian state and courts complicity in this was seen as particularly problematic so uh, the book uh, so it's basically a collection of his writings several of which were written while he was in detention uh, it's titled i am not a silent spectator and it has i think about 10 15 short articles um some on you know kind of ideological essays um but also some on his experiences after being detained um for the bhima koregaon case um and also has a few prison diaries and poems so that's my recommendation and you can click on the link will add to the the transcript to check that out well i don't really have a recommendation um but i have more news um hopefully not not boring news um so i think you guys have seen these uh, uh memes uh coming from pakistan one is the disappointed fan uh which went viral during the icc world cup so uh that has been inducted into the meme museum in hong kong did you guys know that there was a meme museum uh so then uh another so it's been a good month for uh memes coming from pakistan uh there's another uh, one of the iconic memes that came from pakistan which is the uh which is friendship ended with mudassir meme right uh, yeah. and it has been yeah it has been auctioned for over 51000 dollars um yeah um which one is your favorite out of the two and the friendship one obviously <laughs> i think nothing can beat that yeah <laughs> i mean i was going to I was going to say it's hard. I like I like them both. I think I think the the disappointed fan covers a lot more That's true. Exactly. different it's situations. More yeah, it's, it's more, more versatile. versatile. You can use it anywhere. But yeah, the yeah. the friendship ended is also good to yeah, like. It's <laughs> very specific. <laughs> like yeah. you need to have like a jilted friend friend. <laughs> yeah, I mean in the group chat just to let somebody know that you're annoyed, I think. Yeah. That's the group that's chat, yeah. <laughs> um but you know you know what you know so when i was looking up this story i found out so these three are actually good friends now they have like put their differences <laughs> apart and now they're all good friends yeah and the disappointed fan is not is still by himself <laughs> disappointed <laughs> yeah i think he's still disappointed and these are all what they call like non fungible tokens right so it's i mean it's it seems to be gaining ground elsewhere in the region also and i mean it's a way my sense is of establishing authorship and copyright over kind of digital art and, mm. and digital objects in general and on my part i'm actually going to talk about the olympics particularly because in sri lanka there was this unexpected turn where people started commenting on coverage of the olympics with social mm. media kind of raising questions about the headlines which were kind of critiquing the sri lanka delegation's performance and uh, some people were saying you know if you're not an olympic athlete you shouldn't comment or criticize what do you guys think about this is <laughs> criticizing athletes that's a high bar yeah do you think that that's wrong 
<laughs> it's a good question i think <laughs> um because if it's only the olympians who can criticize olympians that's a that leaves a very you know small uh, sample size um but yeah and i mean my sense is also in, in this particular case um it was also the tone of criticism you know that it wasn't really about performance but other things yeah exactly yeah it was very brutal no right yeah it yeah. it was particularly brutal and i think that was a distinction that kind of needed to be made i think criticizing athletes based on their performance is fair enough if they don't like you know achieve their personal best for example it's fine to say that but in particular you know the headline that generated a lot of kind of criticism was that from the sunday observer which actually spoke about one of the athletes and called him pathetic in the headline and that mm. seems more like a kind of personal criticism rather than you know talking about their performances which i think was what the issue was i think it's the same reporter right because i also saw um, i think um, something like you know tehani shoots a sorry picture so i i think that was the same <laughs> reporter um so yeah interesting choice of words i think yeah i mean uh, we can probably also talk about the the case of an indian athlete who was who, whose family faced caste abuse uh, back in india but i just wanted to get back on the sri lankan episode just wondering if it's also linked to i mean that recent kind of sanction or injunction against um, cricketers i think who broke the travel bubble in the uk during some tour and if if there was kind of a general mood of i don't know of being slightly harsh on athletes i think you yeah you might have a point there because there has anyway i mean something that's historically been true is that the olympics delegations have been kind of mm. historically subject mm. to a lot of criticism just because the officials usually outnumber the athletes and there's been some talk about how people who usually don't need to be there manage to get a spot on the delegation incidentally that includes the editor the sports editor of the sunday observer himself <laughs> so um, was he there <laughs> so apparently in the earlier games he actually managed to get himself a spot on the delegation by pretending to be a coach and many people were pointing that out saying you know what's pathetic is that you're you know booking a seat on this flight to fly to the olympics as a coach so <laughs> um i think people are maybe remembering that and was he said back like halfway through probably that's why he's like so bad <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe that's why he's just angry about like the composition but it is a little ironic because yeah he was a kind of criticizing um the those headlines mm. um but apart from that you know the composition of the delegations has always been uh, like a subject of a lot of critical coverage and yeah. this year as well like for example the sunday times talked about how you know it, it kind of alluded to the fact that athletes having their coaches with them uh, during the games was a luxury which uh, you know to me doesn't make much sense when considering that there were a whole lot of ministers who flew there as well mm. who uh, you know are not necessarily needed and then they hastily said that you know it was like privately funded and like yeah. private companies had sponsored them to me it feels like you know having your coach there during a major sporting event i don't think that that is a luxury so mm, i think yeah uh, that's the norm that right? that should be the norm i think yeah. it should be the norm 
So yeah, that that was some of the kind of controversy around it. I was just thinking of what Shobanga said about you know how the cricketers were like you know they they you know received a lot of flack over the last I think four three four years. I'm just trying to think whether uh, in the previous I, I I can't remember honestly you know this type of criticism coming out on newspapers against Olympians in like the previous Olympics. I don't know maybe maybe you know my my memory is uh, quite short but. Uh, I can't remember this this kind of manner of you know uh, this kind of brutal headlines coming out in the past. Of course, like you said, there've always been criticism about the delegation, how big it is, and how you know uh, that I I remember. But uh, this type of you know uh, this this kind of brutal, um, very kind of personal uh, language being used to describe Olympians that I I I can't remember it you know it happening before. Yeah, that's true. I guess. I mean, I think. most of the critical coverage has been on things like the delegations and yeah. of course susantika got a lot of hate as well when she came forward with uh, sexual harassment claims yeah, um, yeah. with the, against the minister so then a lot of it has been about things incidental you know not connected to their performance yeah. um but yeah i mean i don't really recall like this kind of angry criticism about their performance yeah this is reminding me also of some reporting on on some more successful performances uh by athletes in the region india and pakistan uh, javelin throwers um but i think what was pointed out in their case was the fact that a that they came from backgrounds where they couldn't easily you know that that getting into athletics wasn't all that easy and straightforward but also the fact that the funding facilities and training facilities for what they did was not was not adequate and this happened despite kind of a system of support back home yeah i think in pakistan there was there was some criticism right about um i did see some criticism on twitter talking about arshad nadeem's parents who commented that he hadn't gotten any state support in order to advance and some of the discussions i saw were kind of similar to what's happening in sri lanka as well yeah i mean to be fair my sense is a lot of sports except the you know like headline grabbing big sporting events around cricket and a few other things there isn't a lot of state support for a lot of athletic and and athletic activity which is unfortunately true yeah we should also probably mention the case of um a hockey player from uh, india's female hockey team vandana kataria whose family faced casteist uh, abuse after uh, after her team um, came forth and lost the uh, the bronze medal um but i think that the fact that bunch of goons came out in outside the residence of uh, this particular player's um, family and then abused them was was quite indicative also of you know how these kind of discriminatory things can actually transcend social things and also you know be quite apparent in sports yeah that was a really unfortunate case and it just shows how pervasive caste discrimination is that even when it comes to a matter like the olympics and like sports that um, you know the person the player who happens to be dalit is blamed for the loss which is very unfortunate and kind of looking at that made me think about another topic that's really been in the news um in the context of the olympics which is you know the their stance on protests it's seen quite a bit of controversy because um whilst the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee has relaxed their stance on protests 
the IOC kind of technically at first didn't really allow for acts of protest. However, despite that, there were several acts of protest that took place during the Olympics. Like several teams like took the knee in, to kind of acknowledge systemic racism. Um, but I think the most public act was definitely one of the more public ones uh, was from short putter Raven Saunders, who when she stood on the podium, she made like an X over her head. And she was basically saying that that symbolized um, people oppressed everywhere and like intersectionality. And um, that act in particular was got a lot of coverage because the IOC specifically barred protests um, on the podium when you're taking a medal. But she was kind of defiant and said, you know, let them try to take this from me. So that was her kind of response. There were also kind of very wholesome protests such as, well, not really acts of protest, but just demonstrations, such as the Olympic diver, Tom Daly, who was meeting by the side of the pool for most of his, for most of the events. And he actually was um, selling those uh, clothes that he knitted in aid of the brain tumor charity. And he's gotten a lot of followers and his creations were seemed quite like beautiful. So I think that was one of my favorite kind of just acts of I don't know like raising awareness now I was wondering and I'm trying to think of South Asian athletes who in recent years have made shows of solidarity or even protest I mean protest would I think is much more difficult for South Asian athletes to do also given how polarized things can get domestically yeah I mean I think I, I was talking about Susantika earlier now when she raised for her in 2000, she actually wore a yellow ribbon, uh, which was in support of her movement against election fixing. And she got a lot of hate back home for that as well. So sometimes in our region, it's these acts of protest are kind of more difficult as well. Yeah, that's definitely true. They could get rid of the Coca-Cola bottles like <laughs> Ronaldo did. <laughs> they can begin with that maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be a good start. On that note, that's it for this edition of South Asia Sphere. Uh, do head to our website, himalmag.com, to see more of Himal's work. And while you're at it, check out our membership plans and support us. Thanks, everyone. Bye. 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 For more Himal podcasts, go to himalmag.com slash podcasts.